and welcome back to the Bunker Daily, your government-mandated once-a-day ration of enlightening conversation. I'm Ros Taylor. Much of the arts, culture and entertainment sectors have suffered grievously while everyday life is suspended. Movie openings are postponed, live music and theatre are of distant memory, filming on new TV and cinema is off, and we've all had about as much stand-up comedy on Zoom as we can bear. But some cultural activities have unexpectedly benefited from the isolation of the nation, and one of them is poetry. Holed up at home with nothing but an internet connection, many of us are rediscovering the pleasures of verse. Poems written by members of the public, both adults and children, have gone viral. And newspapers are running lists of the best poems to get you through lockdown. Are we experiencing a renaissance in poetry right now? Why does poetry suit the contemplative lockdown life? And what rhymes with COVID? To help us understand this, I'm joined by Sarah Crown, the Director of Literature at the Arts Council and a senior reviewer for both The Guardian and the TLS. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Rose. I'm well, thanks. Nice to hear from you. How is the Arts Council dealing with the corona shutdown? Did you did you work out a contingency plan? Um, we did, yes. What we've um, done at, at the point where it became clear that this was going to be um, a really significant crisis um, for the cultural sector, as well as obviously for the rest of the world, um, we sat down and looked at all of our funding streams and made a fairly, you know, for a fairly radical decision for an organisation like ours, which was to divert all of our funding to an emergency response package, which is worth about £160 million. And um, there are three separate strands of it. One um, for the organisations that we currently fund, um, which will be able to apply um, in to... Um, access emergency funding to help them through the next few months. Um, another for organisations that we don't fund, which is worth about £50 million, um, and another for individuals, so, you know, artists, creators, writers, obviously, um, and, of course, poets um, are part of that group as well, and that's worth £20 million. Um, pounds. And so the idea is, is that um, what we recognise is this is going to be a really challenging period, particularly for organisations that are building-based. Theatres are the obvious example that come to mind. Um, who have to shut their doors and, um, you know, basically stop their income streams. Um, and in order to make sure that at the end of this period of time, we come out of it with a cultural sector that is still functioning and still able to produce work, we need to support organisations and individuals basically to survive for, for the next few months. And that's what we're really focused on at the minute. Yeah, because one of the things about the lockdown is it's clear it's going to be released quite gradually. And unfortunately mm-hmm. for your sector, things like theatres will probably be one of the last things to come back won't they yes I think so I mean that all that I mean you know we, none of us know any of this for certain yet and we, we haven't got any definite plans from government but if you look at what other nations are doing it does seem that you're looking at essential services first, small businesses you know smaller shops that kind of thing although I did notice that um, in Italy I think they're reopening bookshops today um, and I think that in France, in fact, they've kept bookshops open or they kept them open for a long time because they viewed them as essential, which is interesting in the context of the conversation we're about to have, I think. But yes, I think we're expecting that cultural organisations will be at the end um, of this sort of staged um, release of, of businesses and organisations as we hopefully emerge from the lockdown over the next few months. That's interesting. I didn't know that. It's very French to keep the bookshops open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they deemed them to be essential um you know for people and I don't know that was a few weeks ago and obviously things have moved at such a pace that may have changed since then but certainly um you know a couple of weeks back they were they were keeping them open because they felt that people needed literature that it was you know essential for people's mental health in the same way that exercise has been deemed essential by our government for people's physical health difference between Britain and France perhaps (laughs) so is there is there something about poetry's 
very compact, intense nature that makes makes it suit to circumscribed life, do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really it's a really interesting question, and I think you could probably argue it both ways. Um, and probably maybe the way to look at it is to think about the different things that fiction and poetry offer to people. And there's no question that po- that fiction as as a medium has become really important. I think book sales were up about fiction book sales were up about thirty four percent in the week following the announcement of the lockdown. So people are turning to fiction, um, and I think probably that's to do with escapism. It's about being able to get out of the room that you're in um, and step into a different world, uh, maybe a world in which people can still go to shops, for example. Um, and it gives you that that access to different lives and to um, a way of living that currently we're, we're not able to access. So, you know, um, me, I'm like many other people, I'm in the middle of reading um, Hilary Mantel's new book, um, The Mirror and the Light. And so I can step out of my house into Thomas Cromwell's London. And that's a really satisfying thing to be able to do. But um, if you look at social media and the way in which people are talking about, um, you know, what they're getting up to during lockdown, a lot of people are saying that they lack the focus to be able to read. They lack the kind of concentration, um, you know, when we're constantly checking the news on our phones all the time. Um, it can be quite difficult to sink into that sort of deeper state and to let yourself relax enough to go and be somewhere else as you do um, in a fiction book. But poetry is different. It is it is sort of short and its its brevity, I think, is actually really important in this context. Um, it's intense. It's it's a distillation. Um, and it's it's unlike fiction that it's not about it's escaping. It's more about kind of recognition and meaning and and sort of achieving a sense of of meaning in your own life, which feels really important right now. And there was a headline um, of a piece that I read Again, I've lost all sense of time and when things happened. But at some point um, during the last few weeks, I read, I think it was in the New York Times, um, a headline of an opinion piece that said, in in a pandemic or in a lockdown, we don't look for happiness, we look for meaning. And I think that poetry really delivers on that. It allows you to kind of get to grips with with the world around you, to understand it and to 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 contemplate it in a way that feels really helpful, I think. Last week, you tweeted a few lines by Ezra Pound, um, and the days are not full enough, and the nights are not full enough, and life slips by like a field mouse, not shaking the grass. Mm. That was what prompted me to interview you, actually. Mm. It was a perfect bit of poetry for the frustration and the enforced inertia of lockdown. Which poet or or poets have you been reading most these last few weeks? Um, Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, And I couldn't answer it um, sort of straightforwardly, I don't think. It's not that I've been turning to one poet and thinking, you know, that actually what lockdown really calls for is a lot of WH Auden. Um, It's more that um, (laughs) it's sort of a lifetime of acquiring poetry and having different bits of poetry running through my head has proven really useful. It's been this great resource to sort of draw on. And what I found um, is that lines and bits and fragments of of poetry have kind of popped into my head and been kind of recast in the context of the um, pandemic. Because, you know, when I, I've known that Ezra Pound poem for years and years and years, and it's never, you know, it's never occurred to me to think (laughs) that it's got anything to do with being locked down in a house with two kids. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, in in the context of this situation, there's something about it that felt extremely resonant. And I think part of it was to do with his use of the word and at the beginning of the lines, um and that sense of it's the sense of sort of continuity that something is going on and that you can't escape from it it's like you know it's like a wheel that you're on um and that and it really kind of yeah it really made me feel um like it was talking about the situation that that we're currently in I mean I think one thing though that I have done is um 
I picked up uh, an anthology of poetry by Blood Axe Books, um, a poetry publisher based up in the Northeast, um, which was published, I think, in 2001. Um, and it was a bestseller at the time. It was an international bestseller. It, it, it sold millions of copies, I think. And it's called Staying Alive, Real Poems for Unreal Times, <laughs> which felt particularly um, appropriate in the current context. And, and there's something um, really attractive, I think, about anthologies in that it's a lot of different people's perspectives coming together in one place. And if you find that there's a poem that, that isn't quite doing it for you, just into the next one. Um, and it's it's been really satisfying to dip in and out of that. But again, I think it's more for me, it's more about those lines from from poems that I've read over the years coming in and feeling really resonant. So another one that really sort of spoke to me over the last um, few weeks or that came into my head was a line from The Good Morrow by John Donne, um, which is um, a line about, um, I mean, it's about love, really. It's not about um, pandemics at all. <laughs> um, but the line is, um, and makes one little room in everywhere. And again, that felt like something that that really was resonant in this moment, that you're you're stuck in a room, you're in one place, and what poetry can do for you um, is allow you to to sort of make that room everything. It becomes everything, and that felt like a really sort of powerful thought. It's I was I was doing some research on this, and it's remarkable how many poets have been locked up at some mm-hmm. time, or it seemed to me remarkable. And Pound was himself locked mm-hmm. up in an outdoor cage in 1945. But you shouldn't feel too sorry for him because the Italian government was paying him to make pro-fascist, anti-Semitic broadcasts, and that's yeah. why <laughs> the US locked him up. But um, there, I mean, Oscar Wilde is the obvious example with Ballad of Reading Jail, but also Thomas Wyatt, who who, who turns up a lot actually in the, the Mirror and the Light that we were talking about, because I'm reading that too at the moment. And Allen Ginsberg uh, was also imprisoned, I'm sure <laughs> that kind of fitted with his persona. E. Cummings, Verlaine, Chaucer um, mm. as well. Do you, do you think poets cope better with solitude than the rest of us, or do they just write about it better? Um, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Is it that um, if you're a poet, you cope better with solitude, or is it that solitude turns you into a poet? I'm not really sure. And I think, um, you know, if you look at the outpouring of poems that that people have been writing themselves at home during this um, last few weeks, um, there's certainly some weight to the theory. I think that actually, it's the the fact of being locked up forces you to kind of pay attention in the way that that um, you need to to create great poetry. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's both things. I think it's, it's difficult to say which was first. And if you are a poet, if, you know, if you're Thomas Wyatt, for example, and you've been locked up in the tower, um, it is the thing that you turn to, you turn to that act, you turn to that creative act, because it is a, it is a means of escape. It's a means of stepping outside of your um, current environment or a means of fully understanding your current environment for yourself. Um, and in that sense, I think it's really useful. And, and that, the way in which people have turned to poetry, not just to read it, not just to share it, but to create it as well, I think has been really fascinating. And of course, it's not just poetry, it's it's creativity across the board. You know, we've I've spent the last um, three weeks colouring in a massive poster of dinosaurs on the kitchen floor with the kids <laughs> because that, you know, there's something really, really satisfying about making something. And um, it, it, that can be poetry or it can be, you know, clay um it can be art it can be it can be anything but creativity full stop i think is is a way that all of us um you know use to to transcend our circumstances 
There have been quite a few viral poems, haven't there, mm-hmm. from um, school kids and people in the emergency services. And there's one poem constructed from the first lines of emails received mm-hmm. during the lockdown that you may have seen by an American English teacher called Jessica Salfia. And that's that's really quite striking too. What, what did you think of it? Have you seen it? Yeah, I, have to, I thought it was great. I thought it was really neat and smart. And um, that question of at what point does the art of this pandemic emerge is a really interesting one. Um, and I imagine that it will be, you know, years and decades hence. It's not that we're going to um, have a period of lockdown and then a period of publication immediately afterwards. These, you know, the the implications of this time and the ripples of it will be felt for years and years to come. And the great art that comes out of it may not appear for a decade um, or more. But there is something really attractive about the work that is produced immediately in the moment. Um, and I think it's that it's almost like it's like water cooler poetry. It's the we're all experiencing this together. And and the poet that you mentioned has produced a piece of work that immediately responds to and immediately kind of gets to grip with the situation they were experiencing. We've all had those emails coming into our inboxes that feel, you know, either kind of inappropriate or funny or even moving if you're, you know, if that's the sort of state that you're in at that moment when you get it. And what she's done is she's, it's an act of curation, really. It's not necessarily creation. It's its its organisation, but she's done it beautifully um, and, and pulled together all of these different strands to create something that feels much bigger than the sum of its parts, um, which is, which is, fantastic and and yeah sort of it made me laugh and lifted my spirits which is um, another really critical function of poetry at this moment in time I think. Many of us aren't actually alone during the lockdown and that's the paradox of it in some ways that in even in isolation some of us are not in isolation at all on the contrary (laughs) we find ourselves closer to our families or flatmates than we've ever been before and for those people, poetry can be about carving out some private space, mm-hmm. um, a little bit like you were talking about before, uh, making the, uh, a room for yourself. Which which poetry do you go to when you want to do that? Because you have two two children and probably yearn for some alone time. I know I do at the moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's possible that that is in fact the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, having yeah, having sort of space with your own thoughts, I think, is really important and. Certainly poetry can be a really useful bridge to that. Um, And it feels private or it can feel very private. Um, And certainly for me, again, going back to that, the thing that I have after, you know, a lifetime of of reading poems and thinking about poems and and them being very kind of central to the way in which I've constructed my own view of the world. um, They're a retreat for me. You can go back into your head. I don't even need to get a book down. I can just kind of retreat and find lines that feel really sort of meaningful to me um, and a lot of the time they're not necessarily um, you know that they, they have no particular bearing necessarily on the current moment but I think what they do do or, or what I often use poetry for is a kind of emotional release so um, there is something about the kind of the the intensity of poetry as opposed to that the more sort of meandering um effective fiction that allows you to kind of you know if you're if you're feeling really fed up and you kind of just need a little weep in the corner um you can go to poems and 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 get that um and I suppose I'm thinking of ones that I've read over the last few weeks or or returned to over the last few weeks um really <laughs> really non non-lockdowny ones at all um there's a poem by Fleur Adcock um called For a Five-Year-Old I think is the title of it which is about a snail crawling up a window 
and I have a five-year-old, which is why, why I thought of it in the first place. Um, and it's sort of about, it's about your relationship with your child. It's about um, who you are to your child um, and that you need to kind of present a, a front um, in order to allow the child to grow up in the way that, that, that he or she needs to grow up, I suppose, and um, to become the person that you want them to become. Um, and a lot of that time, that's a lie and you're presenting a facade that isn't really who you are. Um, and I've... <laughs> I must have seen a, a snail on a window. That's the only explanation for that. But I've had that one going round and round in my head. And it is one that I find extremely moving. Um, and a couple of Don Patterson's poems on children as well. It must be poems on children. So that's the answer that I've kind of worked my way around to. Um, I think there is something, you know, if you're a parent with young kids in the lockdown, um, thinking about your children is is a complicated and um, stressful and emotional and moving thing. And they're both kind of solace and really hard work. Um, and so thinking about that relationship through poetry, I think, has maybe been something that I've been doing over the last few weeks. I've been also trying to introduce my my son to poetry. He, he's seven and he quite likes a bit of Michael Rosen, but he hasn't really had any other poetry. So I've been reading to him from an anthology which has one poem per every day of the mm-hmm. year. And I have to say that some of them are great and some of them are just weirdly not so great at all. <laughs> Very odd thing. But do your do your kids like um, reading poetry? Um, so my elder son just turned 12 and when he was uh i think nine or ten um his school he was at primary school um here in bath where we live and they did a thing of you know are there any parents who have any you know do you do something interesting would you like to come in and talk to the kids about it and i was it was one of those times where i don't tend to get to parents meetings at my school which is something that i obviously feel really guilty about and so i happened to have made it there and got out of work and got there in time and thought oh, i should sign up for this i should definitely do something so I wrote down something about I could come and talk about poetry. Um, and then the school got in touch and said, you know, would you like to come in and talk about poetry? And I said, yeah, that would be absolutely fine. And I thought I'll talk about um, the Charles Causley poem, Timothy Winters, which is amazing and is all about school, but it's also about injustice and, you know, sort of the, the difficulty of being a kid who doesn't have a lot and going to school. And it's it's really brilliant. And it's it's very easy to kind of get to grips with, I think, if you're a kid. Um, and then I said to my son, so guess what? I'm going to come into school and talk to your class about poetry. And he burst into tears and begged me um, not to come in because it would be the worst thing that had ever happened to him and, you know, and all the rest of it. Um, so in conclusion, <laughs> I have not looked out a way <laughs> to get my kids to, um, you know, have anything to do with poetry, really. And I think maybe it's one of those things that perhaps you have to come to yourself. Um, I didn't come to it. My family weren't big poetry readers. Um, my dad was reading science fiction. My mum liked historical novels. Um, and we didn't sit around, you know, we, we just weren't that kind of family. There was not sort of T.S. Eliot over the tea table or anything like that. But um, when I was about 15, I think, my mum bought me an anthology for Christmas. I always got given books because I liked reading. And she bought me um, a collection of poems called I Like This Poem. And it was a collection of poems um, chosen by children for children. Um, and underneath each poem was the explanation of I like this poem because which the kid had written and it was from four-year-olds all the way up to 15-year-olds um, and I sat on I didn't really understand about poetry or what it was so I didn't know that you you know it was supposed to be difficult and you were supposed to think hard about it or anything like that so I just sat on the stairs and read this whole thing from start to finish and the poems in that anthology I still have loads of them in my head I know many of them off by heart um, and and that was what really got me into poetry in the first place. It was something that I found for myself, and I think often that is that is the best. Those are the best things, you know. If you try and tell 
your kids, <laughs> certainly my children, it could just be my children. But if I say to them, you're really going to like this, then the chances are that they will absolutely hate it <laughs> and refuse to have anything to do with it. <laughs> It's a it's a bizarre coincidence, but actually I'm looking at a copy of I Like This really? on the shelf opposite me at this very moment oh from the 1970s. So I also have a copy of something called Rhyme Time by Barbara Irison, which was 70p apparently when it was first published. And that was also, uh, that was so it's very, it's very strange how these shared things come yeah. to you, isn't it? So people talk about being bored in lockdown, lots mm. of people, but for some people, I don't think they're, they're bored at all. It almost magnifies your emotions. There, there are all kinds of almost private tragedies going on, I think, now, which we can't mm. possibly empathise with, and, all, and, and even less so since we're separated. I mean, maybe, maybe someone was having an affair and that's on hold and things like that. Maybe they're at high risk from COVID-19 and they dread being infected. Mm. And life suddenly becomes too intense to bear. And some of these people can't go outside. They're shielded in the in the uh, term. And that's, what, of course, what we're always told to do when we're stressed. Mm. Um, I've always hated the term nature poetry because it kind of shrieks key stage three reading comprehension. <laughs> um, but, but despite that, I actually found myself opening lyrical ballads the other day, which I hadn't for a while. And I was, I was, on, I was on a journey for the first time in a long time, obviously, because I was going down to Brighton because my father was, was, was about to die. So, yeah. so I was going down and I was reading a, um, a poem about a um, father who is actually the other way around visiting his son who is dying in a, in a mm. hospital and it's quite a kind of maudlin and a poem which a lot of people think is very sentimental but it did actually hit the spot at the time um what are there poems do you think they're particularly good that people can read when they're where they can't go outside and they're cut off mm. physically from nature um it's in i think one of the things that's been so strange about this period um of time is that the outside hasn't matched the inside at all and so we're at this point where we are all being told to stay indoors you mustn't leave the house um that's hard enough if you've got a garden but if you you know if you have no outside space at all that's really you know difficult because the outside world is just exploding um, and there is this effusion of life and softness and beauty in spring, which we're noticing and we're noticing it all the more partly because it's more vivid because, of, you know, we're, we're doing less. And so nature is kind of sort of flooding into the vacuum that we're leaving behind us. And also because we've all come to a standstill and we're all paying attention and we're all noticing things much more vividly than they were than, than we were already. And so there's that contrast between the spring nature that is happening outside, outside the window and the the state that we're in inside the state of kind of you know walls and barriers and being and being locked down and and imprisoned and i think that that in part is why you know if you look at um twitter for example it's filled with pictures of blossom and um you know pictures of birds and wildlife um and we're we're reaching for that we're reaching for nature and we're reaching for it through the poetry that we're that we're reading as well um, and there are a couple, and I think it's it's exactly that contrast, that that sense of, um, the, you know, the, how how can this be happening? How can this terrible situation that we're all we know that we're living through be happening when when everything looks so beautiful um, outside the window? And there's a couple of poems that, um, you know, that poets have have always um, written about spring, reach for spring. It's something that kind of really sort of generates poetry, it seems. 
Um, and you know that that the Ezra Pound poem that that kind of kicked off this whole conversation. Um, he drew a lot of his inspiration from imagism, which in, uh, you know in turn came from um, Japanese poetry and haiku, um, which is the, the the form that most of us are familiar with. Is all about noticing and attention and the seasons. Um, and and so that there, there's long been that association between the two things. But um, I think the the poem that I've been thinking about most is a poem called Spring by Edna St. Vincent Millay, which is um which I can read to you actually if you if you can bear it, which is about exactly that contrast, that the the that sense of the 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 outside not matching the inside. Um and it's quite short. It goes, um, to what purpose, April, do you return again? Beauty is not enough. You can no longer quiet me with the redness of little leaves opening stickily. I know what I know. The sun is hot on my neck as I observe the spikes of the crocus. The smell of the earth is good. It is apparent that there is no death. But what does that signify? Not only underground are the brains of men eaten by maggots. Life in itself is nothing. An empty cup, a flight of uncarpeted stairs. It is not enough that yearly down this hill, April comes like an idiot, babbling and strewing flowers. And I think that that's a poem that I've been thinking about a lot over the last few weeks because it has exactly, it holds that contrast within it, that sense of, of sort of profound beauty um, and and richness um, and the fact that it doesn't mean anything, that it's sitting in direct contrast to what we know intellectually is is going on. That was fantastic. Thank you very much for, for reading us that. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll look forward to packed literary festivals when this is all over. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe and give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that and it helps a lot. We'll be back tomorrow with a full-length epic bunker podcast delivered as ever in iambic pentameter. See you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.